are the Steelers going to win the Super Bowl? Hell! No, I'm just kidding, just kidding, just kidding. So, this series is about supernatural stuff. We talked about heaven in week one and the location of heaven and what's it like in heaven. Part two, we talked about the people in heaven and what they're trying to say to us. Last week, part three was judgment day, the worst day and the best day of your life. We talked about the first judgment and the second. The first judgment is the judgment of faith. has nothing to do with what you've done or not. Whether you go to heaven or hell has nothing to do with any action ever, 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 ever. The judgment of faith determines heaven or hell after that. Then later on, depending on if you're in heaven or hell, you have a second judgment of works, which is based on how you treated people on earth. If you forgave offenses, if you talked behind people's back, how you treated people does affect you eternally. What you do on earth does affect you eternally. Today in our series, part four, the title of the sermon is, What in Hell Do You Want? What in hell do you want? We are a church of love, by the way, and I do have many, many sermons on grace and mercy and forgiveness and all the good stuff, but it's important that we talk about hell. Here's why. Um, If you had friends that were coming to Myrtle Beach to visit, and they called you up and they said, listen, we're about to go to dinner, and then we're going to come and visit you afterwards, and there were only two restaurants in all of Myrtle Beach to go to, only two. One restaurant was very, very good, and the food was delicious. The service was great. The atmosphere was just, 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 just to die for. The prices, everything was nice. Ambiance was great. And then there was a second restaurant, and this second restaurant had rats running through the tables and cockroaches on the plate, and the service was awful, and the prices were bad. If there were only two restaurants in all of Myrtle Beach to go to, and you knew that one was great and one was awful, and your friend said, we're about to go out to eat, and then we're going to come visit, you, would you only tell them about the good restaurant? Would you only say, hey, there's this great restaurant, everything's fine, the food's delicious, you should go there? Or would you also say, if you don't go there, just don't go to this other restaurant. This other one is awful. You'll get food poisoning, it's not any good. Would you only tell them about the good one or would you also tell them about the bad one? Here's what you would do. You would also tell them about the bad one. In fact, you would be more emphatic. To, to describe to them how awful this bad restaurant is so they do not under any circumstances go there. And here's why. As humans, incentives are not enough. Incentives are not enough for us to change or grow. If incentives were enough for us to change and grow, then last week's sermon on the eternal rewards in heaven would cause everybody to join the church, start serving the body of Christ, and grow area after area after area, get in Bible study, read your Bible daily. If incentives were enough for us to change, we would all change every single week. But incentives are not enough. We have to know what will happen if we don't change. Let me give you another example. Whenever you um, decide you're finally going to start eating right and exercising, It's not because you want to look good. If looking good was enough for you to eat right and exercise, then all of us would eat right and exercise daily. When you finally get to the doctor at age 65 and he says you're going to have a heart attack in the next year if you don't change, then you decide to change your eating habits and how you exercise weekly. It's why incentives are not enough. We have to know here's the awful thing that's going to take place if you do not change. And the same thing is true with heaven and the same thing is true with hell. It's good to talk about heaven, but we have to know what hell is like. It's a very important subject in the Bible. 85% of God's entire word from Old Testament to New Testament, 85% of the Bible is who we are apart from Christ. Interesting. I love to preach about who we are in Christ. I love to preach about how we are victorious. We can have peace, joy, 
We can overcome addictions through Christ. We are loved. We're forgiven. That's great. But that's only 15% of the Bible. 85% of the Bible is that apart from God, we can do no good. Apart from God, we are scum. Apart from God, we are selfish. Apart from God, we are full of lust. Apart from God, we can't even think a holy thought, be pure in our actions. Apart from God, we can't do anything. John 15, 5, Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. It's very important that we know who we are in Christ, but if you really want someone to change, if you want your child, your child won't just change because you give them $5, they'll change because you spank them or however you decide to discipline your child. Incentives are not enough. We can't just know here's who we are in Christ. If that were the case, we'd all grow all the time. We have to know when I don't have Jesus in my life, man, I am awful. I am just pure addictions. I am pure awful thoughts. Apart from Jesus, I can do nothing. That's very, very important. So today we are going to talk about hell. Number one, I have three points and then a bonus. And the bonus is the best part. So my goal is to get to that while you're still awake. Number one, is hell real? And for your handouts, the answer is yes, it is very, very, very real. The Bible talks about hell 167 times. 167 times the Bible talks about hell. The same author of the book who taught us about heaven is the same author of the book who taught us about hell. The same God who created the earth that you and I do believe in also shows us in the Bible that he created the heavens that you and I both believe in, but it also shows us in the Bible that he created hell, which we should believe in. The Bible says in 2 Peter 2, 4, Luke 10, 15, Psalm 55, 15, Amos 9, 2, Isaiah 14, 15, and Numbers 16, 30, that hell is at the center of the earth. Now, I'm not going to debate any kind of theological stuff on that, but just like heaven is right above us, and we prove that through Scripture, but we just can't see it or touch it or feel it in this mortal body, in, 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 in what we have, the human body we have right now, hell is also a, a place in the center of hell. You can study those Scriptures for yourself and find it out for yourself. Jesus preached on hell 33 times. So interesting. Now, here's what's so cool, okay? So you're looking for a church, and you see the movie theater ad, and you come visit, and you discover the pastor of that church preaches on hell once a month. In three years, Jesus preached on it 33 times. In three years, he also preached on money 33 times. So once a month, Jesus preached a sermon on hell. Once a month, he preached a sermon on money. Very, very interesting. Why would Jesus talk about hell more than he talked about heaven? Here's why. He didn't want anybody to go there. He did not want anyone to go to hell. So 1A, why did God create hell? Why did God, I love, I love to ask questions that <clears throat> I don't even think people even think they want to know the answer to. And then when I ask it, they're like, oh, I really want to know the answer to that. Why did God create hell? Well, before mankind, the angels were up in heaven and Lucifer, who was Satan, Lucifer was the most beautiful angel there was. He was second in command. He was in charge of all the praise and worship. Lucifer was the music leader. Lucifer had a thought one day. He didn't even say it. He just had a thought. I want them to worship me. Why do they have to keep worshiping him? His goal was to reflect worship unto God. His goal was to get all the angels to worship God and praise him. And one day he had a prideful thought. I want to be the one in charge. I want to be the one they worship. And that thought caused God to force him and throw him out of heaven, down and I believe to the center of the earth. Isaiah 14, 12 says Satan was thrown down from heaven. When Satan did this, he actually talked one third of the angels into rebellion rebelling against God and going down to hell with him. Now, if one third of the angels can be deceived into turning their, listen, they didn't have a deadbeat dad. They didn't have any problems. 
They were up in heaven itself and Lucifer was so deceitful. And you think he can't deceive me and my heart's always for God and I'm always doing it. He's very deceitful. If he can deceive one third of the angels into rebelling against a perfect father, a perfect God, imagine what he tries to do in our hearts. Now, that means if there's one million demons, then there's two million angels. It's just a mathematical note for those of you that are high C personalities and like math. If one third of the angels rebelled against God, that means there's, let's say, let's say there's 10 million demons. That means there's 20 million angels. They didn't live in the projects. They rejected God and they had never been mistreated. Matthew 25, 41 says that they went to the everlasting fire. Listen, prepared for the devil and his angels. Listen real close. Why did God create hell? He did not create hell for you. He did not create hell for me. I'm going to say something very, very important. Hell was not prepared for you, but heaven was. Hell was not prepared for me or for you, but heaven was. John 14, 2 said God, that Jesus went and prepared a place for us in heaven. There's a place prepared for, uh, for you in heaven. And whether you go there or not is up to you, but there's a, pr- a place prepared. Hell was not prepared, was not created for us. 1B, why does God send people to hell? 1B, why does God send people to hell? Anybody ever wondered why God sent, if this all-loving, all-powerful God who just loves everybody and is all perfect, why would he send somebody to hell? Listen real close, he doesn't. People reject this all-loving God and they choose the world over the creator of it daily. They choose to reject God and go to hell. We are born into sin. We we have a free will. A free will is only a free will. uh, Let me say it this way. Love is not love unless there's a free will. All God wanted was someone who would choose to love him. So he created us in his image. All he wanted was a family. And so love cannot exist unless there's free will. You say, well, I want God to change this. And why does he stop this bullet from going into this person? Why, does he, why is there hell and da-da-da-da? Because he gave us a free will. And so we love for God to jump in when we want him to jump in and fix this and change this. But when we eat something bad for us, don't change us on that. And we want to watch something bad, don't change us on that. Just change us when something that hurts our feelings comes about. No, we have a free will and it's because he wanted us to choose to love him. Because all he wanted was a family. That's all God ever wanted. He does not send people to hell. People choose to reject God and go to hell. Our default when we're born is hell. We are born into sin. You don't have to choose, uh, you don't have to teach a baby how to, um, something's going on on the microphone. Do I need to change batteries? Are we good? We're good? Okay, bring me back the way I was. Um, we, don't, we, we don't have to learn how to be selfish. A baby is naturally selfish. You have to teach a baby how to be good because we are born into self-centeredness and sin. Um, you never have to teach a baby to say, give me, or mine, or I want. It comes natural for us. Our natural, um, uh, when we we're born, we're born on a path to hell. We have to choose God to be able to go to heaven. Now, I'm going to prove this to you very, very importantly. Romans 1, 19 through 21. That which is known about God is evident to them and made plain in their inner consciousness because God himself has shown it to them. Listen, for those of you that wonder, well, what about somebody in Africa and they don't hear from God? God says he talks to every single person. He gives everyone a chance to choose him. Everyone, everyone gets a chance. Sometimes our hearts are full of pride. Sometimes we're so self-centered that we, no matter what happens, we choose to completely turn our back and reject God. But he speaks to everyone's conscience. He's spoken to your hearts and your children's hearts and your neighbor's hearts. He's spoken to our hearts, but sometimes we push it down and suppress it so much that we desensitize the voice of God. He goes on to say here, um, 
Ever since God created the world, his invisible qualities, both his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly seen through the things he's made, his handiworks, so that people have no excuse at all. Listen, God says he will even reveal himself to us through mountains and trees. How can you look at a redwood or a sequoia tree and not think, is there a God out there? And the oceans, in the vast oceans, how can we not look at this, these things that he created and he says invisible can be seen from these things. Now, it's interesting, people can see all this and they can still look in the mirror and say, I came from a monkey. And then my question is, where did the monkey come from? But either way, <laughs> they can look at all this that God created the beautiful lion, just the animals even, and still reject God. So here's, here's, here's the next question. How could anyone reject a loving God? Why would anyone, how could anyone reject a loving God and go to hell? You're thinking like, oh my, why would anybody do this? Okay, listen, some of you are thinking, well, if I could, if, if this loved one that I'm praying for, this friend that right now they're on their way to hell, and you know, I mean, I, I pray for them, I try to find a church, why in the world would they reject God? If they could just see heaven, if God could just take them up to heaven for a few minutes, then they would come back and they'd serve God and they'd get in church and they would believe, right? Lucifer was in heaven, he saw it all and he still rejected God. So then we think this, we think, well, if God would just walk with me, if he would walk with me and talk with me, and if he would answer all of my prayers, if he'd give me everything I needed and wanted, if he would make my relationships perfect, if he would walk and talk with me, then I would believe and then I wouldn't reject him and then I'd get in church and I'd serve and I'd honor God, da, da, da. Well, he walked and talked with Adam and Eve. And they had the perfect life. They had the perfect father. They had the perfect marriage, perfect relationship. They had everything they ever wanted. And they still chose to turn their back on God. Isaiah 5.14 says, therefore hell has enlarged. Listen, hell has gotten bigger and it's getting bigger daily. Not by design, but by necessity. Hell gets bigger daily, not because that's the way God designed it, but because people every single day choose to rebel against God and refuse to accept a free gift. Next question then, 1D, why won't God appear to people and tell them about hell? That's right, right, listen, if God appeared to us right here in human form, and he pre and let's say that he came in human form right now in this church, and let's say he raised a dead person. Let's say he healed somebody of blind eyes and of deaf ears. Let's say that he forgave people and loved them and did everything right. If he would just come and then tell us about hell, then we'd believe he did do that. And we rejected him so strongly that we hung him on a cross and crucified him. And people still refused to believe. See, all these thoughts we have sometimes, well, if God would do this, I'd believe. And he'd do that, I'd believe. He did. And yet there's something in our hearts that we won't believe with just having the word of God in front of us. We won't believe with anything. We won't believe when you hear it preached. Uh, Americans, we have so much truth available. We can go to the internet, phones, TV, movie. There's so much of God everywhere. And if we still choose to reject him, man, we got pride issues. We got problems. He, he appeared before us and we still 
rejected him, spit on him, beat him, and hung him on a cross. So you say this, well, if Jesus would appear, and if he would reign for a thousand years, right? If Jesus just, if for a thousand years I could be in heaven, and I could see, if he would just, if he would, if Jesus would come to earth, and he, he would just rule the whole earth for a thousand years, then I would believe, then I'd serve, and I'd be in a good mood, and then I'd have a good attitude at work, and I'd say, I'd pray for people, and I'd read my Bible. Well, at Revelation 28, it says, after the thousand years are over, this is the millennium reign, this is the future, Satan still deceives people into following him. He still does it. Here's what's interesting before we go to the next point. From the beginning of time, all God ever wanted was a family. That's all he ever wanted, was someone to choose to love him. That's it. All he ever wanted was a relationship. All he ever wanted was a family. That's it. He created the moon, the stars, planets, galaxies, ocean waves, uh, mountains, trees. And all he ever wanted, all that stuff we think the sunset is beautiful, psh, that's nothing. We were created in his own image. The sun wasn't created in his image. That's, that thing, how miraculous and beautiful that is. And he has all that, and he don't care about none of it. He don't care about gold. His dirt is gold in heaven. His pavement is gold. All he ever wanted was someone to choose to love him. That's it. From the beginning of time, and listen, at the end of time, that's all he gets is a family. That's all he ever wanted. That's all he ever gets. Point number two, and we're going to go through number two very fast. What's it like in hell? What's it like in hell? I had a friend that worked for the um, EMS or something uh, upstate, and one time there was a car explosion, and a family was inside of a car. They got in a wreck, and evidently there was gasoline cans in there for some work the dad was going to do with the lawnmower or something. Long story short, it was a gas fire. And I, I told you this sermon is rated PG-13, and it, you'll see why later on too as well. But um, the, the, the fire was burning this family alive, and they were trapped in the car. And he was one of the people that got there on the scene. And, and I, I don't know exactly what took place at all with the family, but the, the people that saw it happen... They said before the family, before the people in there passed out from pain, the screams that they had coming out of their vocal cords were the most terrifying, unheard of, unimaginable sounds that they did not think could even come out of human vocal cords, the pain that they were in. Hell is hot and hell is very, very real. In hell, 2A, you have a physical body with physical pain. Remember we talked about in, in heaven you have a heavenly body? In hell you have a body. And this body um, is going to have physical pain. It's going to have mental pain, emotional pain. And, and the body that you have in hell, there, there's, a, there's a mechanism that we have here on earth in our, human, in our earthly bodies. There's a mechanism that allows us to pass out when we reach a level of pain. I was having dinner with a friend of mine the other night, and he talked about how he was at Taco Bell one night eating, and he bit his tongue, and the sheer bite in his tongue, he passed out. He just passed out. I watched one of my kids being born, and I passed out and threw up at the same time. It was awful. Oh, y'all laughed at that, but the boy that bit his tongue at Taco Bell is no big deal, right? Anyway, whatever. So, so there's a mechanism in us on earth that allows us when we reach this level of pain, we pass out. That mechanism is gone from your body in hell. Matthew 10, 28 says it destroys both soul and body in hell. And that word Gehenna we're going to talk about in a little bit. But notice it destroys your soul too, not just body. Your soul is in constant eternal torment. Soul is your mind, your will, and your emotions. And there's some things that keep us mentally stable on earth. 2B is this, light. 
There's no light in hell. Light keeps us mentally stable. Even people that are blind can see uh, when lights are turned on or lights are off, and it helps them mentally to be able to just be stable. Matthew 8, 12 and Matthew 22, 13 says they're thrown into outer darkness. The Greek word there for hell is blackness. It says where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, and we will talk about that as well, but there's no light. No matter how, how hard you try in hell, you will never, ever, ever see or ever talk to a single person. Another thing that keeps us mentally stable is solids. Whenever we can touch something, in hell there's no solid. Whenever you can stand or sit or grab things, that keeps you mentally stable. The Bible says in our Revelation 9, 11, 17, and 20 that hell is a bottomless pit or an abyss. No matter how hard you lunge in hell, you will never touch a single thing. 2D, here's your mental, here's what messes you up mentally as well. There's no rest. Rest keeps us mentally stable on earth. Sometimes even during your day, you think if I can just sit down for five minutes and just take a, just rest for five minutes, I'll be okay. You will never, ever, 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 ever rest in hell, ever. Revelation 14, 11 says the smoke of their torment uh, ascends forever and ever. They have no pause, no intermission, no rest, or no peace. Like when they're training for the military, they keep them up 24 hours, 48 hours, 72 hours, and they're going crazy, and you will never rest in hell. 2E, the last thing I want to tell you about hell is this. There's no hope. On earth, we always have hope. On earth, there's always hope that things will get better, that Jesus will come through, that things will turn around for us. 2 Thessalonians 1.9 says they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, separated from the presence of the Lord. Where the presence of the Lord is not, there is no hope. There's no joy, no peace, there is no hope. Now let me say something to you. People who commit suicide on earth, and we talked about suicide in the first sermon, and we talked about Samson, how Samson committed suicide and he's in heaven. But aside from talking about that theologically for now, people who, who, who commit suicide on earth, it's because Satan has deceived them into believing a lie that is true in hell, but false on earth. And that lie is there's no hope. People who have committed suicide, they believe a lie. Satan convinced them to believe something that's actually true in hell, but it's not true on earth. And that is that there's no hope. Point number three, we talked about in, um, in sermon two what people in heaven are trying to say to us. We, we have scripture to back that up. Point number three is what are people in hell trying to say to us? What are they trying to say to us? It'd be interesting if we had a true story of somebody in hell. Oh, we do. That's right. It's uh, found in um, Luke 16, 19 through 31. This is a true story. This is the first hell and the first heaven. Abraham's bosom, there was a chasm and there was hell across from it. Ready? Luke 16, 19 through, 22, through 31 says this. There was a certain man. This is a true story, not a parable. It's a true story. Certain rich man who clothed himself in fine linen, feasted every day. There was also a beggar named Lazarus. Now, this is not the Lazarus that Jesus rose from the dead. It was a common name back then. He was covered with sores, hoping to be fed by the crumbs from the rich man's table. The poor man died and was carried by angels. That's very comforting that angels carried him to Abraham's bosom. The rich man died and went to hell. Being in torment. Now, every time you see the word torment, it comes from a Greek word that describes this machine that would put holes all in your body with metal things and strings and would stretch a person slowly until they died. They'd be in constant pain for day after day after day till they died. And that's what this word torment means in the Greek. Being in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham afar away with Lazarus. He cried out. And that word cried out does not mean in the original language, oh, Abraham. 
Abraham. It means he's screaming at the top of his lungs in so much pain he can't get rid of it. And so he's crying out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus that he may just dip his finger in water and cool my tongue. I'm being tormented in this flame. Abraham said, remember, in your lifetime you had everything good. Lazarus had everything bad. Now he's comforted and you're tormented. Besides, there's a deep pit between us. No one can come from either side or over. So the rich man said this, I beg you, Father Abraham, send Lazarus to my house where I have five brothers that he can tell them about this place so they won't come to the horrible place of torment. Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets to warn them. Now, for your Bible, Moses and the prophets means the Old Testament. Moses wrote the first five books. The prophets wrote the rest. Here's what they're saying. They have the Bible. They have preachers to tell them about it. They have the internet to look it up. They have books on every shelf. They go to Barnes and Noble's Lifeway. They have it available for them to see and read and hear the stories. And so he said, um, uh, he said, no, 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 that's not enough. If someone were to rise from the dead and go to them, they would repent. Now, I want you to realize the last sentence, it changes the tense of the story. Listen real close. Abraham said, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. He was saying just what I told you earlier. If they won't believe this, they won't believe the one who actually did rise from the dead. There's more proof that Jesus lived, died, and rose from the dead than there is that Julius Caesar ever lived. Not Caesar, but Julius Caesar, the, the, the character in Shakespeare's play. More proof on Jesus lived, more scientific proof that he lived, died, rose again than there is that Julius Caesar ever lived. So here's what they're trying to say in hell. 3B. <clears throat> Please tell my family about Jesus. <clears throat> That's what they're saying in hell. If there's anything they're screaming, <clears throat> here's what they're saying. I hope my kids don't come here. I hope my grandkids don't come here. I hope my friends don't come here. I hope my neighbors don't come here. I hope my coworkers don't come to this place. And then they'll have this thought. John Paul's a believer. <clears throat> Dan's a believer. Mary's a believer. Sarah's a believer. Maybe they'll see my child and tell them how easy it is to avoid this place. Maybe they'll meet one of my co-workers that I was friends with for years and they'll tell them about heaven and about hell. Maybe they'll come in contact with my brother and they'll tell them how easy it would be to not go to hell and then they'll have this thought. They won't tell them because they didn't tell me. We talked about football we talked about politics. Why didn't they tell me how easy it would be to never, ever have to be here? Every person in hell has this thought. After I've been in this place for 10 million centuries, I will not have one less second to be tormented. <clears throat> Last point, and this is your bonus. And I require complete silence for the next five minutes, phones off, <clears throat> babies' mouths duct taped. <laughs> Just kidding. <clears throat> the bonus is this hell is like Gehenna. 
the valley of Hinnom. Five minutes from now, you're never ever in your life going to forget the word Gehenna. Jesus was preaching about hell one day to some Jewish people. And they just weren't quite grasping how awful hell was. So he looked at them and he said, Hell is like Gehenna, the valley of Hinnom. And when he said that, every single one of them stopped in their tracks. In 600 BC, 600 years before this, there was a, the valley of Hinnom. And there was a continual fire that burned in that valley during that time. And there was a drought in the land. The economy was bad. And so poor people didn't have a way to financially bury their loved ones. Even when there were wars and battles, people didn't want to take time during that 600 BC time to bury people they loved. So they would take the bodies and they would throw them in this fire. Gehenna. And so there was a constant smell of the burning of flesh. From the time you were close enough to even see this valley on fire, you were already smelling burnt flesh. During this time, 600 BC, there was a king named King Manasseh, and also a king named Ahaz who did the same thing, but mainly King Manasseh. And King Manasseh was a wicked god. He started getting into fortune tellers and horoscopes and wizards and, and, and things like that, and they somehow deceived him and, and Satan deceived him into worshiping this false god of fire called the god of Molech. And it got so bad, so evil, that Manasseh would talk his people into throwing their live babies into this burning fire. The mothers would give birth. They would nurse their babies they take care of them, three, four, five months old. And then they would have parties. And they would worship this god of Molech and throw their live babies in the fire. Jeremiah 7.31 says they would burn their babies alive in the Hinnon Valley. It got so bad and so evil that then the children that were six, seven, eight, nine years old forgive me, but they would, they would take their clothes off and they would put them in front of the fire and they would push their live children into the fire while the parents celebrated. The kids that didn't want to go, they would beat them and use whips to drive them in the fire. Second Chronicles 33, 5-6 says, King Manasseh built altars to worship the stars. He burned his own children alive, made them pass through the fire in the Hinnon Valley. He practiced witchcraft and consulted fortune tellers, mediums, wizards, and familiar spirits. They would be so afraid. They would be in so much, the children would be in so much fear. Not only would they be in pain physically from the fire and being beat by their parents alive, but mentally and emotionally, they would literally go crazy with something so unnatural and so ungodly as being burned alive by your parents. And Jesus looked at these Jewish people when he was preaching on hell and he stopped and said, listen, they were starting to walk away. He said, hell is like Gehenna. And the second he said Gehenna, 
Every Jewish person knew exactly what he was talking about. And they turned around and they stopped and they listened. Jesus said in Mark 9, 46 and Matthew 13, 42 and 50, the fires of hell, Gehenna, they never go out. Where the worm preys on inhabitants of hell and inflicts wounds, it does not die. The fire is not quenched. There will be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. The children were in such torment as they got into the fire, they would gnash their teeth together so hard that they would come flying out of their mouth while their parents are beating them and burning them alive. And Jesus told them, this is what hell is like. Why would Jesus go to such incredible lengths and depths to describe something so evil verbally because he did not want anyone to ever go there. Hell is like Gehenna, the Valley of Hinnom. When I was 20 years old, I bought my first house and I was very excited and I built a fence all the way around the backyard and one night, late at night, it was maybe 11 o'clock at night, I was outside admiring my handiwork and just, you know, proud of my new house. And it was the smallest one in the neighborhood. The house across the street was the biggest one in the neighborhood. I was in the backyard late at night and I smelled fire. I thought, man, this doesn't smell like, you know, charcoal. It smells like something's burning. And I walked around the front and the two-storied house in front of us was totally on fire. I mean, the whole thing. I was surprised that I was the first one that saw it and so I screamed for the neighbors and I screamed, call 911. I had my pajamas on and, and I started to run to the house to see if there was anybody trapped in there. And I remember getting even to the front yard and feeling the heat and seeing the timbers falling. And just as I was about to do something crazy stupid, the neighbors pulled up. It was their house. They pulled, pulled up. And I thought, thank God. They said, there's nobody in there. If you go home from church today, and you see that your neighbor's house is on fire. <clears throat> I don't think any of you would have this thought. Let's eat lunch. Enjoy our time together. And then we'll call 911. Then we'll go see if somebody's trapped in the house. See if they're burning to death. No, immediately. You would immediately call 911. Run up to the house. Anybody in there, do what you could to help. Okay, listen. Your neighbor's house is not on fire. But your neighbor could be. According to God's word, if someone is not born again, I'm going to describe next Sunday exactly what that phrase means. They are destined for hell. Hell. 